we have a very engaged workforce. They've been part of the strategy development, not just a sense check at the end. And they've really challenged us. They've been outspoken. They've said, yeah, we don't agree with you, Sarah. Or, you know, we think you need to go that way. So we've had a far more engaged process. But probably the biggest thing that has influenced our strategy development this time is we developed very early on, very organically with our board, two very specific guiding principles for us that have kept us true to our strategy and purpose. Hi, I'm Belden Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'm very pleased to welcome Sarah McMath, CEO at Mosul, the market operator for non-household water, which covers about 30% of the water usage in England and Wales. Mosul needed to build confidence in their ability to perform so that they'd be trusted to deliver innovation the market needed. Join us to learn how they turned around their performance, created strategic guiding principles, became more inclusive in their strategic planning, and developed an employee net promoter score of 60. So, Sarah, welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. It's really a pleasure to have you with us. I wonder if, just to set the scene a bit, you could describe a bit about yourself, but also about Mosul and what it does. Yeah, certainly. So we are the market operator for the only competitive market in the water industry. So if you're a business customer, if you're a non-household customer in England and Wales, you can choose who provides your retail services. So you still get the water and sewage from the same place, from the wholesaler, from the water company, but you can choose who effectively provides your customer service, produces your bills, and basically provides that retailer service. Our role as market operator is to ensure that that market operates efficiently. I should say the market's only been open since 2017. So it's a new market and we're a relatively new organisation. So for a lot of people, perhaps even including me, the the idea of a market operator is perhaps a new idea. I understand what a retailer does. I understand what a regulator does. But what does a market operator do? So our purpose is advancing simple and effective water markets to unlock value and choice for customers. What that actually means on a day-to-day basis is we have a number of obligations to make sure that the companies who produce the water, the wholesalers, work with the retailers who sell the water to customers and to make sure that process works. So we run the processes of new entry. So if somebody wants to enter the market, they have to complete a number of uh, tests, I guess, a market entry assurance process. We run the settlement process, so ensuring that the amount of money that customers are paying for the water is accurate and correct. And I guess that is sort of our day job. We also run a co-change process. We have loads of rules in the water, non-household market, and we are custodians of that rule set. 
So we ensure that the rules are being followed. We report against performance and where parties are not performing against the rules, we run market governance processes to bring them back in compliance. We are very much at the heart of the market and we are completely independent. So we also provide a role where we engage with a number of key stakeholders in the water sector, both those who are, you mentioned regulators, so we engage a lot with Ofwat, the economic regulator, with central government, with the environment regulator, but also with a number of code panels and groups of people who are involved in the market. We bring them together to seek to advance the market for the benefit of business customers. What's an example of a rule that people have to follow? (laughs) There are lots of them. So there are a set of market codes where effectively it says what a wholesaler's role is, what a retailer's role. So a good example would be that a retailer has an obligation to make sure they get a timely, accurate meter read for a customer in order that the customer gets a timely, accurate bill. That sounds like a really simple thing, but there are a whole load of rules, which we call the market access code, which companies need to follow in order to do that accurately. Probably the biggest set of rules is around the data. And at the heart of what we are in Mosul is we are a people and a data organisation. So we have a big data insight capability where we can take all of the data that's in the market system. So we own the central market system that carries out that settlement. And we work with our trading parties to make sure that that data is accurate and complete. And part of that is also mapping information. So you'll be aware that we are in a country where we're running out of the stuff. 30% of the water in England is used by non-household customers. So there's 1.2 million customers using 30% of all the water we can provide geo-mapping of that that shows you who's using the water, where they're using it. And importantly, if that water resource zone has enough water for today and for the future. So a lot of our work is about linking the usage of water and aligning that with the industry's understanding of provision of that clean, safe drinking water. It sounds like a very complicated, specific and multifaceted role. How on earth did you get to be this chief exec? What was your journey to get there? So I did a degree in microbiology and I joined Thames Water 29 years ago doing a doctorate. So I thought I'd be there for four years and then move on. I eventually left Thames Water after 24 years, working in a variety of different roles, frontline, technical, asset management, and for the last few years of my time in Thames as head of strategy. So a lot of work on defining the strategy, on building the business plans. If I'm honest, that's relatively simple in a water company. Your purpose is clear. Your job is to provide clean, safe drinking water and take people's waste away safely and discharge it into the environment 24-7. So throughout my career in Thames, that sense of purpose, especially as a microbiologist, was clear to me. It was at the core of me. It was at the core of what I did every day. And it was at the core of what everybody did. 
when I left Thames and took on this role as CEO of the market operator, I was the fourth CEO in the first two years of the market operator. So Mosul had not had an easy start in life as a small business. And one of the things I identified literally within the first couple of weeks was there was no sense of clarity of purpose. So if I asked 10 of my colleagues, what is the purpose of Mosul? I'd get at least nine different answers. And they didn't necessarily even ask why I was asking purpose. They would give me a very transactional answer, some of which I've already given you. They would say, well, our job is to make sure that tax settlement is timely and accurate, or our job is to make sure that all of the market committees are run to time, cost and quality. And it was a very transactional answer. What we didn't have was that clarity of why we're here. What was it that we were working together to move something, whatever that thing was, forward. So you kind of recognize that early on. How did you go about getting to, I assume, where you are now, which is everybody knows what the purpose is and, you know, what was that journey like? How long did it take? Who got involved? How did you do it? So interestingly, because of a business and a time-based requirement, I started it the way round that would not have been my desired approach. And I've changed that as we've moved forward. So I joined in June of 2019. And what became really clear was whilst we didn't have a purpose, we also didn't have an approach to business planning. I should have said that we are funded by trading party. If you're a water company or a retailer in the market, you have no option but to be part of the market operator and they have to pay me a charge based on the number of customers they have. That means that I am accountable to all of those trading parties, those water companies and retailers. They basically pay my salary and everything I do. And Mosul had had a really checkered history in terms of being clear on what we were going to deliver and whether we had delivered it. Ideally, I would have started with purpose, strategy, and then move on to business plan. But because of the timing, I started with a bottom-up business plan. And that did help the conversation around purpose. So we started with being really clear on what is our job? What are the things we have to deliver? Either they're in one of the rules I mentioned earlier, or there's something that we have a core obligation. I have a whole something like 2000 compliance obligations in our rule set. So we have things we have to do, we are obligated to do. Are we doing them? And do we know how much we're spending on each of them? So we went through that business planning process in that first autumn. I have to go out to my trading parties who then vote on that. We got a vote in favour of that plan. And then once we'd got that over the line, we then started thinking about purpose and strategy. You've probably guessed where I'm going now in that when we were just about to start that work in mid-March 2020, and we had engaged a company called Up, the Up Company, to work with us on developing our strategy and purpose, we suddenly went from a new team to a whole group of individuals all working individually in their front rooms. So we delayed that initially because my very strong desire was to do that in person. And by about June 2020, we realised that we were not going to be able to do this work in person. So we took 
what was a big decision to define our first ever vision, purpose and three-year strategy and do that remotely. What was interesting in that is that one of my executive team hadn't even started working for us. So he ended up joining this work about four weeks before he joined the team. So we were very much a new team working remotely, something we hadn't done previously with a new member of our team who hadn't even joined the team yet. Did Up still work with you on that? You know, often if you do that in person, there's lots of post-it notes or flip charts or maybe pictures that people use or, you know, a whole bunch of different things. How did you actually manage all that virtually? It was tough, if I'm completely honest. And one of the changes, we've just refreshed our strategy. We've just published our 2024 to 2027 strategy a few weeks ago. And we did do all of that in person. And you're absolutely right, being able to draw on boards. I draw lots of pictures pictures that make loads of sense in my head, but when they're on a board, I have to explain them in quite a lot of detail. Um, The Up Company were brilliant. They adapted very quickly to working virtually. They used a number of online boards and basically resources where you could put virtual post-its on them. And it was suboptimal, but it was the best I think we could have done in those circumstances. Probably one of the differences from doing it in person was the time you could spend on it. When you're working on this sort of thing, you tend to have pretty full-on days. You have break time, you have lots of side conversations, you have lunch together, you maybe have an overnight. We were having to be very limited on time slots. And what the up company were really good at is making sure that we were getting up, moving around, They actually did an exercise with us where they got us all standing up and visualising the future, moving around in our workspaces. In all honesty, it was not the same as doing it in person. It took us about three months over that period of time. And we started it very much with just my senior leadership team working through our priorities, examining you know, what else is going on in this, what was a slightly mad world at the time, what are the friction points in the market. And then as that plan developed, we involved our board. And again, in a virtual environment, we brought them into some of those conversations. And then once we'd got the board comfortable with the direction of travel, we then engaged our wider team in what we called a springboard event, Again, that was online for that very first one. And that was very much about temperature checking. You know, is this broadly where you would expect us to land? And, you know, is there anything glaringly missing? And then I think we further refined the strategy and got approval from the board in the September. So it's about four or five months overall. And then took that out to our trading parties for comments and feedback. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you were doing a bit of clarifying the purpose and strategy stroke business planning sort of at the same time. Is that right? Absolutely. And very much setting the vision as well. The purpose was at the heart of it, but we needed to get that clarity of, I guess, you know, why are we here? What are we seeking to achieve? And it was different to my previous experience of strategy within a water company where you have a relatively structured approach and you can be clear, this is the outcome I'm seeking to achieve. And that outcome is pretty well defined. 
for us in Mosul, we were having to really start from actually, what does good look like? Where are we trying to get to? What are the challenges that we've got today? And very quickly, we recognise that two of our key strategic priorities needed to be on our organisational capability, because a lot of the areas where we could see in order to deliver our vision and our strategy, we needed a skill set we simply didn't have. And in some cases, it was outsourced. So we were using outsource resources to deliver things which were core to our being and we were paying a lot of money to third parties to train their own graduates and their own resources and then to move on so organizational capability became a really key strategic priority and then the second one was around data so we recognized that actually one of our real USPs, I guess, the thing that we had that nobody else had was this central view of who is using what water in this market that is 30% of all the water in England. So that that focus on data, and I should also say that was also informed by the pandemic because I got a call from DEFRA shortly before the first lockdown saying, you know, in this like hypothetical scenario whereby every school and hotel and restaurant shuts down at some point in the near future, what will that mean in terms of water consumption? And I had to honestly say, we don't know. Because whilst we had lots of data, we had lots of data points, we had virtually no insight. So those two key themes of data insight and organisational capability came about by us being clear on what's our job why are we here oh that's interesting we have all this data but we don't know what to do with it and we don't necessarily have the right skills and expertise to utilize whatever insight we get out of that data to advance the market data can be completely valueless and it can be very very valuable as an organization, can you monetize that data to generate revenue outside what you get paid currently? Or is it just a value add to the market? Yeah, we're not for profit. Any monies that we don't spend at the end of the year, we give back to trading parties. So we are not for profit, trading party funded. And I think that, again, helps you identify your purpose and why you're here. So that clarity of who are our stakeholders, who are our customers all came through that first piece of work around understanding why it's important for us to be a purpose-led organisation. And one of the really important changes that we made as a result of that was a move away from what was quite a silo-based organisation When I joined Mosul, it was clear everyone was working hard. Nobody was sitting around doing nothing, but they weren't all working in the same direction. And that led to lots of pockets of work. I think when we did that first business planning round, we identified over 200 individual projects that were being worked on. We're a team of 82 people. That was more than one each. (laughs) And it wasn't evenly distributed. So from a very practical perspective, purpose was important. But back to your question about monetizing that data, I think 
because of the way in which we're funding, that purpose becomes quite pure compared to financial outcome. You don't have to be doing things because it's the thing that makes the pound. You're aligned behind a purpose, which is around advancing the market. And it does give you that focus and clarity on what those priorities should be. Yeah, and it sounds like, from what you said, more recently you've kind of revisited at least your strategy, your business plan. What are we going to do over the next few years? Did that also include another look at the core purpose? Or was it like, no, it may have been difficult to get there, but what we did virtually sorted that out for now? Um, Yeah, I guess two things we did differently this time. One was that we did do the work in person and we had lots of scribbling on boards and lots of post-it notes. And we did start from, are we still comfortable that our vision and purpose are correct? After relatively little debate on the purpose, we all agreed that we were very aligned behind that, that the purpose hadn't changed Interestingly, we changed one word in our vision. Our previous vision talked about delivering the best customer outcomes. And we recognise that our role is more an enabling role. So we work with trading parties, we work with key stakeholders, with the wider market. But our role is one of enablement. It's one of providing that data, providing those skills and resources, providing that systems capability to enable people to work together to advance the market. So we made one word change to our vision. But for strategy, yes, we have a different strategy that will come into play within the next four months. So can you describe that strategy at this point? Yeah. So interestingly, doing it in person took longer. We had the time to really focus in on where are we? And actually, we spent quite a lot of time looking back at the strategy we created about three years ago now and saying, have we delivered against this? So there was quite a lot early on around where are we on this journey, reflecting on how far we had come. But really interestingly, how those two strategic priorities of data insight and organisational capability were really just how we do business now. So one of the key decisions we made early on, and it caused a bit of a raised eyebrow from our board and from our people, was actually these aren't strategic priorities anymore. They are underpins. These are simply how we do business in Mosul. So our organisational capability, we have insourced a lot of those core skills We have a highly engaged workforce now. We do a quarterly pulse check. We've moved from a starting position of a zero on our quarterly MPS score, which was really depressing. But I was told the scale is minus 100 to 100. So we were right in the middle. Yeah, yeah, at least it's not negative. (laughs) At least it's not negative. We now have an EMPS of 60. So we have a very high level of employee engagement. Wow. So what we were able to show is that we delivered our strategic priority of organisational capability, but it doesn't go away. It's just an underpin. And likewise with data insight, data now informs all of our decisions. It informs the work we do on a day-to-day basis. It's just at the heart of what we do. And again, it was really important to recognise that three years ago, we didn't have a data insight team. It's now our single biggest team within Mosul. So we spent quite a lot of time just making sure, yeah, okay, we've, we've delivered on this. This is where we are. So that was our starting point. 
The new strategy sets out four new strategic priorities. The first one being market confidence. So it recognises that one of the most important journeys we've been on in the last three to four years is to be a trusted market operator. People didn't trust us four years ago. They were not confident in our ability to deliver. So our first strategic priority is market confidence and never losing the focus on that making sure we're not chasing the shiny, glittery stuff. We still have loads of rules we have to follow. We have lots of base jobs. We're doing that really well and consistently now, but that has to be relentless. The second area is around our market systems. So we've developed a technology roadmap. We operate that system. We've seen a significant increase in cybersecurity. Not many people understand what Mosul does. I still think there are people in Russia who think I actually operate some water assets because we have a lot of cyber attacks. So we've got a really high level of focus on protecting our systems and making sure they're fit for the future. Today, the majority of water meters are dumb meters and they are read on a relatively infrequent basis. We're moving towards smart metering. How do our systems cope with that change from two meter reads a year to 15 minute data. So there's a big focus on systems. Thirdly, water security might not feel like it on a rainy day, but we are a country that is running out of water. We have significant water scarcity challenges. And then our fourth strategic priority is on market evolution and on making sure we don't accept the status quo. There is a lot to do in our market. How do we work with stakeholders to evolve the market to continue to deliver against that purpose of advancing the market for the benefit of business customers? What does an advance in the market look like? So again, this links back to our vision and purpose. It's about providing choice and value for customers. So if you're a business owner, you can choose who provides your retailer service. The reality is that switching has been relatively low and there are lots of reasons for that. And part of that is the poor quality data. So advancing the market is ensuring that business customers can choose who provides their service and that they can get added value services. So that could be greater focus on water efficiency, how they use their water, how they maintain the supply of water in a water scarce area, but also advancing it in terms of challenging some of the reasons why the market isn't delivering across the board today. So One of the things that we can see from our central position is really challenging some of the wider challenges and how we as a non-household market operator can influence policy and promote solutions. So seeing the market as an opportunity rather than a market that currently has a relatively low activity. At the heart of that is water is very cheap. So for a lot of business customers, there isn't really a very good value proposition on using less water because the impact that has on your bottom line is relatively small. But if you're, for example, Coca-Cola or um, a food production company, if you don't have water, you can't make Coke. And so tying that line, advancing the market so that we have that water security now and into the future. That does seem like it takes the organization from being a fairly administrative, you know, follow the rules, process the transactions, 
to a innovator, strategic leader, you know, kind of role. Is that right? And if so, is that intentional? Um, yes. And the intention has been to build that market confidence to, I guess, give us legitimacy to have a role in that market evolution. And I mentioned before, we were not a trusted market operator four years ago for all sorts of reasons, you know, relatively new organisation, but also a history bluntly of not delivering. I had to stand up in front of my peers at my first CEO forum, uh, which was about four months into my tenure, and explain to them that I didn't know what we had spent £600,000 of their money on. So we were running a big programme, it was poorly delivering, and I had to stand up and when I say, I actually don't know. And I think really importantly for me, trust has to be earned. And it's very hard fought, but it's very easily lost. So it's hard to win trust and it's very easy to lose it. So that focus on doing the basics brilliantly every day of really, really listening to our trading parties, the people who pay our salaries, and responding to what is it that they expect from us. And what has been really interesting in this strategy development, there's been, in addition to it being in person, there's been a number of other key differences. One has been the degree to which we've been able to involve our wider employees. As I mentioned, we have a very engaged workforce. They've been part of the strategy development, not just a sense check at the end. And they've really challenged us. They've been outspoken. They've said, yeah, we don't agree with you, Sarah. Or, you know, we think we need to go that way. So we've had a far more engaged process. But probably the biggest thing that has influenced our strategy development this time is we developed very early on, very organically with our board, two very specific guiding principles for us that have kept us true to our strategy and purpose. The first principle is to challenge us when we're thinking about a piece of work or a strategic direction as whether we are the best place or the only ones able to do the work. And if we don't feel we meet that best or only criteria, we don't do it. This started off as a strategy discussion, but it is very, very quickly developed into our daily language and we're using it to challenge ourselves. So what do I mean by that? I think the only ones is, is easy. We have some market obligations. We're the only people who can operate the central system. But the best place really challenges us to think about, are we the best people to do this? And that test might be, it's just more cost effective for us to do it. So we're running a central data cleanse. It's just cheaper for the market to pay my team to do it than for 15 water companies to engage 15 different data teams. So sometimes it's just it's cheaper. It might be we're best placed because we have skills and expertise or systems that nobody else has. Or it might be that we're best placed because we can ensure that there is a level playing field in terms of competition. Or it might be we shouldn't do it because by pursuing a piece of work, we're constraining competition and we're not allowing the market to flourish. And that test has really helped us be disciplined in doing the right things rather than 
chasing the shiny, glittery things. It keeps us really, really true to our purpose. And then our second guiding principle has been what we are calling our perform and transform continuum. We see that as the infinity symbol, recognising that our strategic priorities and programmes of work span us being able to perform as a market operator, to do the basics brilliantly every single day, and us transforming the market, as you said, moving into that more innovation. But we have to have that legitimacy to transform. And the reason we see it as an infinity continuum is because we also cannot be complacent on our perform. You know, I don't have a group of people whose job is just to perform. I expect those people who are doing the more transactional core services to still be looking for opportunities to do it better, to advance it further. So to see that continuum of in order to deliver our purpose, we really do have to continue to be challenging ourselves to be our best selves every day. Mm-hmm. I really like that approach of sort of trying to boil it all down to a few key principles that both guide the strategy, but also become part of the day-to-day discussion. I think you said it arose organically, but how did you even begin to notice that, ooh, this is a thing? You know, here are these two things that we ought to call our principles and do something with. <laughs> well, interestingly, we didn't initially think of them as guiding principles. The best and only came from a board member. He just said it in a conversation and we just sort of found ourselves repeating it. And the more we repeated it, the more we explored it. And the more we explored it, again, this was working with the up company. They were saying, well, it sounds a bit like a principle, guys. You're just using this language a lot. So it did very much come completely organically. The perform versus Transform, interestingly, started out with a completely different concept, which we showed our development as the evolution of man. And we have we have, one of our team is to anthropology and we were looking at, you know, our development from over this period of time. And so that, again, was really organic. We started off with a picture, which was sort of a land animal turning into a homo sapien and describing our journey in that context. And actually realise that we are on this journey that, yes, we have to continue to perform, but we are at a point now where we've earned that legitimacy to have a voice in terms of transformation. I like that a lot. Um, As you were going through this journey, so it sounds like you've had two rounds of both looking at the purpose, even if the second time it was like, yeah, that's pretty much about right. And then also looking at your strategy, what was the most fun part of all that? I think the most fun part was learning and growing as a team and recognising we are a really well-balanced team in terms of our backgrounds. Uh, We're a very diverse team in Mosul. We're, We're far more diverse than the water sector as a whole. And the most fun part of this process was recognising that everybody had a different perspective, but by holding true to that purpose and the guiding principles, we could be so much more powerful than the sum of the parts. And if I'm honest, the most fun part was how excited everybody was by the process. There was a huge energy in the room, not just in my executive team as we were doing the early work, but 
when we held a full day away day with all of the team, people were really interested. They were excited. They had stuff to say. They had a voice. One of the things I say all the time to my team is we need to be more toddler. We need to be asking why, 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 why all the time. We need to be exploring. And the exciting part of this, the fun part, was seeing people being willing to challenge as a very non-hierarchical organisation actually having people disagree with me and having the confidence to tell me if they don't agree and they think I'm wrong. And that confidence was probably what drove that energy and that excitement in the room. Yeah. What was the most difficult or stickiest bit of it all? I think knowing where to start. Really? If I'm honest, the first few sessions, you sort of feel like you're not going anywhere or you're going around in circles. I think a massive bear trap for us was trying to wordsmith. I'm really bad at wordsmithing. So something I learned along the way is if somebody sets me a task, I'll try and do it. And we spent too much time early on trying to get the words exactly right and holding ourselves to account to say, actually, it it doesn't matter whether we use those individual words. Are we all agreed that we're broad in the right place? And I guess one of the principles that we developed, which wasn't in the same category as the others, but was a promise to each other that we would not always reach consensus, but we would reach commitment in the room. So once we had challenging conversations and we got round and round and round in circles, we would come up with a position And even if you didn't 100% agree with it, we would commit as a team that that was now where we were going. I mean, you sort of touched on it, but how have you changed through all this? Oh, that's a great question. Um, Having the confidence to lead in my authentic style and having the confidence that a culture can be influenced by a team of people working towards a common purpose. The last team I managed before I left my old job was about two and a half thousand people. I now have a whole team of 82 people and I absolutely love leading a small business. And so what I've learned about myself in this process is how important it is to know the people in my team at a human level. I now know every member of my team, their partners, their kids, their cats, their dogs. And whilst I recognise that in myself in the past, in my previous leadership roles, I know that makes me a better leader. Having that personal connection, having the ability to lead and develop a high-performing, diverse, inclusive team is what gives me energy and gets me excited about going to work in the morning. So you said having the confidence was kind of key. Did you do something different to have that confidence? Did you have it when you got started? Did it develop over time? Where did that come from? Um, Partially it's about results. So I mentioned about our employee engagement, being able to engage with everybody and I guess the most important learning point is recognising that if you listen to people and if you respond to that, and sometimes it's not doing what they've asked, but you explain why you're not doing it, that gives you a credibility and an ability to influence change, which is really powerful. So for me, it's all about that 
cycle of exploration, about learning, about working together as a team, being open and curious, allowing people to be their authentic self at work and recognising that by doing that, you come up with a greater answer. So I guess the confidence came from, well, look, it's working. We're moving the dial. We're performing. People are telling us we're doing a good job. We are getting positive reinforcement. I think the danger of that confidence is that it tips into arrogance and you can stop asking. So for me, that employee net promoter score, that external asking our trading parties for feedback, that actively seeking and responding to feedback can never go away. You can never become that confident leader that says, yeah, it's okay, I've got this nailed now. I know what I need to do. So for me, the confidence comes from moving the dial and continuing to listen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you had to do it again, what would you change? I think getting more involvement early on from the wider team was really important, but also looking much more broadly to the people who you touch. So in our second round of strategy work, we sought a far wider group of stakeholder views. We recognised much more clearly who are the people who we touch and who touch us. So recognising the impact and the influence you have and ensuring that you are considering their views in the process was a big change for us. It sounds like in a few years you might do it again if you have a sort of three-ish year cycle. I should have said that actually. What we have is a a three-year strategy refresh, but the other change we made was our business plan now is whilst I have to go out and get approval on my business plan for a budgetary process each year, we have a rolling three-year business plan that looks forward into the next strategy period. So we are always presenting a budget of one year and then a roll in two years. I struggle with the three years, if I'm honest. I'm used to working in a sector where a business plan is five years and a strategy is 40 years. So one of the differences for me in this role is our planning and our strategy horizons are much shorter. I think as the market advances and as we get more certainty on the regulatory framework, I would love to push to a longer term strategy platform, particularly for some of the systems development and some of those broader market evolution. So that would be my longer strategic process. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's really good. Um, what haven't I asked you about that you wish I had? What might we want to spend at least a few minutes on? Um, maybe what being a responsible business means to, to me in, in Mosul. So one of the things that was absolutely fascinating for me as we developed the strategy was the degree to which my team want to have an absolute clarity of what we are doing from a sustainability and a responsible business perspective. So I've mentioned two of our key underpins in our new strategy of data insight and people. The third is sustainability and recognising how important that is to the people within my organisation has, again, been a real light bulb moment of this is important. People want to care. They want to have that link to their purpose. For me, being a responsible business is broader than sustainability. It's also about providing 
psychological safety, providing an inclusive and supportive environment for people to be their best authentic selves and do their best work every day. That respect for each other, the need to drive forward the inclusion, diversity and equity agenda in the water sector. And we have a real role to play in that as a central market operator. We are small, but we have a sphere of influence, which is beyond the 82 human beings who carry out market operator services. So I think what part we play in the broader water sector and how that links into our culture and the way in which people feel, you know, you spend a lot of your life at work. I want people in my team to wake up on a Monday morning with a smile on their face, not a feeling of dread that the working week is beginning. What, uh, what questions, if any, do you have for me? I think my team feel really empowered in their roles. And I, I guess I've got some evidence to support that. But if I think about where strategies fail, it's where companies fall down on who needs to feel empowered, who needs to be part of that strategy. So I'd be really interested in your views on you know, how important is it that you have that commitment throughout an organisation to deliver a strategy? Is that something you've got views on? Sarah, great question. You know, that's a PhD dissertation in itself, which I won't go into, but let me just touch on two things. Um, how important is it? I think there's two dimensions of that. One is, um, let me call it the success dimension. You know, as an organization, can we achieve? I, I'm a firm, firm believer that organizations where everyone feels empowered are going to outperform. Does that mean it's essential? Well, if you're in a game, a contest, a business where a few percentage points better really matters, then yeah, it really matters. If you're in a place where maybe it doesn't quite so much, it doesn't matter as much, you know, but I think every organization, everyone I've ever seen, if people are empowered, which for me includes things like, do you understand what we're trying to accomplish? Can you do a good job of it? You know, you have the tools that's for me, it's, that's all part of empowerment. I think they do better. The other one I think is a deeper one. The other dimension of that is, is one that you touched on. Suppose empowerment was performance neutral, didn't make any difference in the performance. I'd still think it was better that everyone was empowered because I just think it's a better way to live. If it's performance neutral, why wouldn't you want an organization where people come in thinking, I can make a difference? And actually, I do make a difference. If you look at the whole question of purpose and all of that in organizations, the best evidence I've seen for financial performance says you can't tell the difference between ones that clearly put performance at the heart and ones that don't. Maybe there's been better analysis, but I haven't seen it. My question would be, if it doesn't make a difference to the financials, and I think actually it does, but let's just say it doesn't, why wouldn't you want an organization where people feel they're coming in and doing something worthwhile? I think it's a pretty good read across from what you experience in your work life and how you think about the rest of your life. And I think empowered parents, empowered neighbors, empowered, it's just better. Yeah, 
I would agree. Sarah, sorry, I'm, I'm beginning to get on my soapbox. Uh, can I say I'm really, really enthused by what you've had to say, just to hear the clear direction you're headed in and the way you're thinking about it, particularly this idea of let's involve more of the people we touch and that touch us. So thank you for coming and sharing that. I really appreciate it. No problem. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us and leave us a five-star review. It helps others find the podcast. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Mm-hmm.